0: And I really believed in what Primo was going to be. But we have, I would say, some of the most amazing customers, the kindest customers in the world. If you think you got a good business idea, do it. We're here to educate and we're here to serve our customers, to deliver on the promise that you're making to them. Are you going to regret more a venture failing and you not getting exactly what you wanted? Or are you going to regret more not even trying to do it? Just execute what you want to do, even if it's in a small way. So many people have ideas, but ideas are worth a dime of a dozen. It's all about how well you can execute those ideas.
1: I'm Darian.
2: I'm Elena, and this is our podcast, Step Into Success,
1: where we give you an inside look at how people are currently creating success in their respective fields.
2: Our mission is to bring you into the trenches for an inside view and hopefully give some inspiration and knowledge as you work towards success in your own way.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Step Into Success Podcast. We by far have our most stylish guest uh on today, Lewis Jeremita from Erie, Pennsylvania. His company is Primo Tailoring. We're super excited to have you on, Lewis. Looking forward to the conversation. If you would just give us an introduction, tell you tell us, you know, who you are, what your company is, and we'll get started.
0: Absolutely. So Like you all heard, my name's Lewis, and I own a tailoring shop here in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, What I do mostly is helping guys look their best in any form that I can help them, whether it's tailoring, custom clothing, retail, or just general style advice. Uh, My my goal is to just help guys look 1% better than they did yesterday. Um, And Primo does that by the way that we do our shopping experience. So really, Primo as a whole is a shopping experience and lifestyle brand. Uh, geared towards that mission.
2: That's awesome. I love that. 1% better every day. That's achievable, but yet still making that incremental progress. So can you give us a little bit of background of how did you start getting into your trade as a tailor? Um, And then just a little bit of background about the business getting started as well.
0: Absolutely. So it's kind of a fun story of how I got into tailoring. um, Back way, way back in like early parts of high school, middle school. I hated dressing up. Anything that had a collar on it was not for me. I was wearing (laughs) cargo shorts and graphic t-shirts. I hated. I did not care about what my appearance looked like whatsoever. Uh. (laughs) Um, Later on down the road, I realized that actually by not caring, I did care because I was worried about the message that caring about my clothing would send off to people. Um, But when I hit high school, it was really my brother who kind of dove into the history of menswear, how it links so much back to like the history of military and kings and lords over in Europe. And I just really fell in love with the history of it and then started to kind of change my ways a little bit about the way I dressed and the message that it portrayed to people. Um, around that time, I started my blog and I just really wanted to learn as much as I could and share with other people what I had learned to try and help other people grow. Um At this point in my career journey, I was doing home improvement and construction work um, because I really liked building things, working with my hands. And that was the most uh, straightforward way to do that at the time. And I was kind of dabbling with the idea of how to get into the fashion industry, how to um, kind of change career paths. But two two stipulations is one, I didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't want to have to go to college for it. And two, I didn't want to have to like be in a super competitive field where I was trying to beat out the next person. Um, And after doing some research, I really found uh, tailoring as a cool niche that people aren't taking advantage of. Everybody needs them still, but nobody's really taking the time to learn how to do it. So that's kind of where my trajectory changed from home improvement construction to tailoring. Looked for a few places in Pittsburgh to teach me how to do it. Nothing really came of it until um, after I graduated high school, my now mother-in-law knew somebody um, in the area who knew somebody who was looking to bring on an apprentice to learn how to do it. So I commuted up to Erie a couple days a week to learn the trade um, and just kind of fell in love with it from there. And then after the pandemic, I saw an opportunity to start Primo and then we started our own company.
2: Wow. That's really actually... Very interesting, I didn't know that about you with your background and just totally switched gears. Um, So that's very cool. And I think that makes it attainable for other people to know like, yeah, you can go from one extreme to just the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, So that's really really interesting. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about when you decided to launch Primo and kind of go out on your own, what were some of the initial steps that you had to take to make that happen?
0: Yeah, so the way that I wanted to go about starting Primos, I didn't want to do anything too um, too quickly because I wanted to make sure that every step that I set up in the beginning was going to be set up correctly for when we were where we needed to be at the end. So some of the things that I did was I turned it into a legitimate business. We turned it into an LLC. I had contacted a lawyer that I've been working with even to this day to kind of set all that up for me to make sure it was legitimate. Um, and then we just kind of found our own space to work out of. So it was real estate and then um, getting the official documentation that we were a business was the first step. Um, and then from there, it was just kind of collecting as many customers as we could. Hey,
1: Lewis, we're going to get into customer acquisition and all of that for sure. But I actually want to go back real quick. If I heard this correctly, you started a blog before you actually did the apprenticeship uh, with with the the company in, in Erie, Pennsylvania? Is that is that right?
0: Yes. Uh, started a blog. Actually, the fourteenth was nine years from when it was created. So, oh
2: wow,
0: it was a so good was couple years before we started. Oh okay, yeah. So so what did
1: you do? So what was the blog like? What was the blog about? And you know what were you trying to accomplish with that before you actually got into the actual tailoring itself?
0: Absolutely. So before. Um, Primo became a thing, the blog and my other Instagram name which a lot of people refer to me as is the Aspiring Gent. Um and that's the name that I started the blog with and the goal was to one document how I was aspiring to become a gentleman um as well as helping individuals aspiring to become a gentleman. So it was kind of like this dual thing of like I'm learning but I'm also helping you learn along the process. Um and for that podcast, I mean that blog which turned into a podcast which turned into a lot of different things. Um, was to just pretty much document what I had learned and try and teach others um, what I was learning. So kind of helping the person, the step behind me to get to where I wanted to be. Um, A lot of the content that I created on there was just for fun. I tried writing a lot of blog posts, but I have a terrible writer. So it quickly switched into like social media, photos, video, that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, just kind of documenting my process and helping others.
1: Great. Yeah, that's, that is, um, I feel like, a, a really cool transition, right? Did that, did that help you having the blog and trying to, you know, help people through that avenue? Did that help you when it came to actually filing an LLC and creating a business? Like, did you learn stuff by, by just doing the blog that helped make the transition into starting a business easier?
0: Um, I would say it helped in the way of like recognition and brand recognition, especially in the town I live in. It's a pretty small community. Um, so having that influence kind of set me apart as the expert in the field where we are, um, in terms of the business stuff, it didn't help too much with the actual building of the online presence, um, because it wasn't until a couple of years ago that it really got some traction. So for the most part, it was just a side thing, um, it did help that I was very interested in business content, so I consumed a lot of it. Um, but I wouldn't say that my personal experience running my social medias helped with that, but it was a pretty easy thing to learn.
2: So you kind of mentioned you had found a space to start Primo Tailoring. Was that, um, we, we kind of met you at PACA. Is that the spot that you're referring to when you had your own spot? Um so what did that look like for you finding was it like a rental space that you just kind of or like a co-working space and then moving into acquiring your own set aside building can you walk us through that process a little bit
0: Um absolutely now I don't know about you guys and I'd like to hear if you guys feel the same way but as an individual personally I have a hard time doing things out of my home. So that's where it all started. I was working out of my house. um, I was working out of a buddy's house and we were making masks during the COVID time. Um, But even like in like fitness and gym stuff, and this is kind of getting off on a tangent, I can't like get myself to work when I'm sitting at my house. I'll find too many distractions to do things. Um, So acquiring the space was more so as like a commitment to myself of like, okay, one, I've got to pay rent. So I've got to be out there looking for customers. I can't just do this as a passive side thing. But it also kind of helped me with a mindset of when I come into this studio, I'm here to work. I'm getting work done. I'm not finding little distractions. I'm not sitting and watching Netflix. Um, It was very helpful for me to distinguish the spaces. So I could have kept working out of my home, but that step for me was very important. Uh, And that's how I got into PACA. I was looking for a space that was affordable. And one of the amazing things about PACA in particular, if anyone local is listening, uh, is they have very affordable spaces for smaller entrepreneurs, creatives to kind of get on their feet, have a studio space, uh, but not break the bank. So that was super pivotal and, or crucial, I should say, in the starting of my business because I didn't have to shell out thousands of dollars for a studio space. It was a couple hundred bucks and it served the purpose I needed.
1: This is some really good information. And to be honest, I would like to go into this just a little bit more because I think I'm, you know, I'm thinking about myself, for example, buying or renting a a piece of property to actually run your business out of. I mean, that is a huge step, right? That is like full on commitment. Like you said, What? did you feel like, like, what were your, what were the emotions going through your mind when you decided to actually make that purchase? How scared were you? How nervous were you? Or how excited were you? And what type of, you know, what would you say to anyone else who is out there and they're right there teetering on, should I go ahead and rent a space? Can you, can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Absolutely. So it all kind of depends on your current situation. Like there's some people that can be super motivated at home. And if you can save the expense and add that to your bottom line, go for it. Um, But for me, it was a lot of different emotions that I felt. One, it was like excitement because it was like feeling real and tangible that I'm going to have a space that I can put my sign on. Um, But it was also a little bit nerve wracking because I'm like, okay, I'm signing a year long lease. If I don't make money, I'm going to be on the hook for this lease and I'm going to be losing a ton of money. So there was quite a balance of emotions that I had to play with there. Um, But again, like I said, I think it helped me in so many different ways of growing the business. And I talk about this a lot of the time when people ask me about how I started and who are in similar situations is for me, and I found it works for others, is once you take that next step that seems a little bit out of reach is when you actually rise to the occasion and your business comes and supports you. Now, it doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes you fall on your face, but every time I played it safe and I was like, well, I'll wait till I get enough money until I can afford this, or I'll wait till I get enough money so I can quit my other job. I never got there because I hit a level and I plateaued but as soon as I said okay I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to rely on this it gave me the desire to then go out and grow it bigger Um, so to me I think if anybody's looking for that excuse to just go ahead and get the space if you think you got a good business idea do it because the business will end up eventually propping itself up if it's a good business and you're good at executing at what you do Um, it just kind of lights a fire under you love it
2: That's great. So was there, if you don't mind speaking to this, was there sort of a threshold that you felt confident that you could do it and not fall on your face? Like you talked about maybe quitting your job or having enough money. Did you have to acquire funding at all? Or was this all like you just kind of pulled yourself from your bootstraps and said, I'm doing it no matter what? Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, so the transition in from where I was working to where um, I was at Apaca, it was kind of an interesting one because I was kind of waiting for that threshold to be like, okay, I'm going to get to this level and then I'm good and I'm set. Um, thankfully, for me, it kind of worked out. I had won a small business grant uh, like six months beforehand, which I used a lot of it to kind of set up the entity that was that is today Primo. Um, But when I transitioned into my own space, it was also very fortunate because of the pandemic, I was making a lot of masks for people and I was able to actually generate some revenue at home that I was able to stockpile to actually make that leap. I wasn't like pulling out a credit card. I wasn't trying to get a loan from somebody. Uh, It was just the business kind of naturally took off. And then there was this weird position with my old employer where he kind of gave me an ultimatum. Either you stop what you're doing at Primo and you work here full time or you... Um, leave here and you go work at Primo. He didn't want me doing both. Um, And I really believed in what Primo was going to be and what we could turn it into. So at that point I was kind of like, you know what, I'm dipping, I'm getting out of here. So I had to make that leap. At that time I had already had the studio space, so it wasn't like compounding the pressure, but it did add a little bit of pressure because I was like, okay, I can pay my rent, um, but now I'm losing this income. So now I got to make my income back and pay rent. But thankfully, uh, praise the Lord that it worked out. Or otherwise, we would be probably working at like Erie Insurance or McDonald's or something right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a it was a bit of a jump, but very glad that we made it.
2: That's great. It's always so exciting to hear those victory stories because um, I think fear kind of traps a lot of people from taking those actions. So can you tell us a little bit more about the process for you with, you said you had won a small business grant um, and the pandemic, you know, kind of altering your circumstances in your favor. How, how can someone who is maybe just getting started look for resources to put them in a better place to get started? Like, how did you come across that small business opportunity?
0: Um, So for me, uh, Google really was a huge help for me. Just looking up local places that are helping to develop businesses, incubators. um, Usually, yeah, a simple Google search for small business grants in your area will populate some stuff. And then, yeah, calling some of like the Chamber of Commerce, trying to just figure out whatever you can to... Get to where you need to be on your own through Google and research, um, but also finding other business owners who you can reach out to for mentorship or advice. Um, If you can find somebody who's done it, they usually have the desire to share with how they got there, as long as you're not like in an exact competing space, um, which is what I found. So asking people... Just getting out in the community, letting people know what your plan and your vision is. And you'd be surprised how many people come along and say, hey, I found something that might be interesting to you. Check it out. So Google and then networking.
2: Are there any specific networking um, groups or anything that you join or was it all just kind of like going to restaurants and talking to the wait staff or going to a bar or something like that where it's just like organically within the community or were there specific like intentional networking opportunities that you sought?
0: Uh, So a little bit of both, the ask, the, the plan I took to try and get out there was one through social media. So digital networking, um, two was very specific events geared towards networking. So speaking events where you could attend and meet the people at, um, I think, uh, there was a couple like bigger, like group events that were happening in the area at the time at the convention centers. Um, and then also, yeah, just being out in public, running into people, you know, making sure you're going out showing face. Uh, were kind of important for me but
1: I take it was it important to do the networking with an audience that might buy your clothing right so were you trying to do networking more in like business type settings where people are looking more for buying tailor-made clothes or were you just trying to spread the message as broad as you possibly could
0: Yeah, so I don't know if this is applicable for everybody doing business, but personally for me, I just like meeting people and getting to know them. So I was casting as wide of a net as possible because I just really enjoyed meeting new people, understanding their walk of life, and it was just a personal interest for me. Uh, I do think it became very beneficial in the long run because if somebody isn't your ideal customer at the moment, they might know somebody who's an ideal customer or they might eventually become an ideal customer. So to me, still like building and securing those relationships in a community, especially a smaller community like Erie, Pennsylvania is super important. Now looking back, because yeah, you never know where your business is going to take you. Uh, And I also think it comes down to the idea of how you're building your business. Are you building it just to acquire as many Um, customers to buy your widget as possible, or are you actually trying to build something that betters people's lives and betters the community? Um, And with that in mind, I'm like, okay, let's meet as many people as possible so that maybe I can't help them right now, but maybe we can do something in the future.
1: So Lewis, we've talked about how, you know, you got the business started, you've got the space, you're networking, getting your, you know, getting your message out there how did the customer acquisition process really take off? How did you start building a customer base? What was it like getting those first few customers? And how has that evolved over time?
0: Yes. So for me and where I'm located, word of mouth was huge. Um, It also did help that I wasn't starting from scratch from zero. I had made a bit of a transition to my side business, and then it kind of kept leveling up as we went. So I already had a a bank of customers that had been spreading the word like wildfire for me. So to them, I'm forever grateful. Um, social media, running ads, getting people to find me that way. Um, Google SEO was a big one. Google searches are not dead. So make sure that you're appearing on Google searches. Um, I would say about probably now 80 to 90% of our customers, even today are just finding us through a Google search. Oh, wow. Um, so kind of being very aggressive on the digital side as well as, um, keeping up with the networking, because we built those relationships, it kind of paid back in the long run, because people knew us, they knew we were starting a business, and they wanted to come along and support.
1: Lewis, I got a, I got a question for you. And this may be something that we, you know, we were going to get to later in the conversation, but it's just come to my mind. I've been in sales a lot throughout my life. And one thing that I, I see a lot are people trying to race to the bottom when it comes to price, right? They want to have the lowest price because they feel like that makes customer acquisition easier or whatever the case may be. You are dealing with very high-quality materials, right? You're making these tailored suits. Cost, you, you are never going to be the cheapest in your space, right? Do you find that you have a lot of customers that you have to, like, really express the value and explain to them the value of what you're what you're you're selling and the whole service or do the people that come to you already expect that they're going to be paying you know a higher cost than if they just went to JCPenney, for example
0: yeah it's um it's an interesting market that we're in but my motto is is it never pays to be the cheapest or the second most expensive person in town it never pays to be the second most expensive around Um, because you have like two competing business models. You can be the high end, you can be the luxury, the Gucci, um, and you're built off of being the best, or you can be the Walmart, which is how can we cut the most cost, get the cheapest product. Those are two viable business models. But when you meet in the middle, it is like you said, a race to the bottom, which we never wanted to be. We never wanted to have to be $10 cheaper than the guy down the street. Our goal is to always be the most expensive, highest quality place in town. And that does help us in two different um, distinct ways. One, it attracts the person that understands that and wants that quality. And we get customers that come in. They don't even care about price. It's like, I want what you're offering because we can trust you. Um, And then you have the other guys who are needing to be coached through the process. But to us, we're never trying to sell to somebody who's not interested in our product. So we're here to educate and we're here to serve our customer. So, even if they're not, our customer is not ready to buy with us at the moment, we still want to educate them on why we're the best and why we're expensive. And then, if it happens that they're not going to shop with us, help them find their solution to their problem. Um, so, there's a lot of education, which again, the social media plays a huge role in because I can educate people before they come in to see me. Um, they can kind of know what to expect. Um, but also, by being the best in town, you automatically kind of inherit that top end customer because they're looking for what's best.
1: Makes perfect sense. Love
0: it.
2: I really enjoy that um, educational aspect of what you do. I was actually telling our team earlier, like on social media, I follow you. And while men's clothing may not be directly applicable to me, I'm very interested in the content that you create. Just one, it's informative, but two, it's also interesting the way that you assemble Uh, the package that you put together for your social media and also having been in your space, you know, kind of getting to see that luxury feel. um, Can you speak a little bit more to that element of trust and kind of building that relationship with the customers? Because I think that that's a little bit of a different approach than some people have where they're just focused on maybe driving sales or um, quantity over quality, Can you speak to that personal element of how you handle um, selling a product, but also building a relationship with your customer?
0: Yeah, I think for Primo, that is kind of the whole business model uh, that we're trying to approach with, is because everywhere you go that's a high-end luxury place, or at least that I've gone, I'm sure there's other ones that aren't doing this you almost feel like this level of like, I don't belong here, like a looked down upon. And I kind of do a test whenever I go to a city. I try and find a high-end men's store and I go in there and I kind of like mentally record how I'm treated. Um, And oftentimes I feel like I don't belong here. So when we started Primo, we wanted to make sure that everybody felt like whether they're coming in for a $19 hem or they're coming in for a $20,000 suit, that they got the same level of service. Um, And for me, it just kind of goes back to A principle that I hold that we're dealing with people and they're not just products to give us money. Um, and it might not be the fastest way to grow a business, but for us, we're here to be a legacy company. We want to be here in 50 years, not just the highest grossing business of 2024. Um, so having a people first approach has been huge for our, um, customer base to keep coming back and buying more product. Um, so it does have that effect, whether it's intended or not. Um, but it also just feels good at the end of the day that as many customers as possible leave here happier than when they came in. Um, so that's really kind of my focus is if it drives sales by being people-focused, awesome. If not, at least I can say I was helping people until I had to go do something new.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's it's a great way to look at it. So trust... Being people first, customer focused, those have all obviously contributed a lot to your success. What are some other factors that have contributed to your success? Do you think it's just simply your passion for the fashion industry and what you do? What else uh, would you say is contributing to your success?
0: Absolutely. So the biggest one actually goes back to my faith. I have a very strong faith. And I believe that one, all glory goes to God who gave me the ability, the passion and set me on this path. Um, So that's the first thing I have to say that that's where all of it is coming from. But in actual and other practical ways, the team that we have, the current team that we have is phenomenal. And for us, we don't want to just find the best in Erie. We want to try and find the best people in the industry to help build what we're building. I could not have been here without our tailor, uh, Joel Marie, Um, our sales guy, Isaiah, has been learning and doing great. My wife, Olivia, all amazing parts of making this what it is. Um, And then the other thing is, Erie, Pennsylvania has actually done a fantastic job in welcoming us. There was a lot of hesitation starting off, like you're never going to do well with expensive menswear in Erie, Pennsylvania. It's a blue collar town. Um, But we have, I would say, some of the most amazing customers, the kindest customers in the world that come and work with us. So those three ingredients is really what I put all of the success into. Like I do think I play a part into it for some extent for taking the risk, but I'm just starting a clothing store. It's not that hard. It's it's compiling the team and the pieces that make for a successful venture. Um, that I think Primo was very very blessed to get right right off the bat.
1: So something you said right there that that just made me think. Um, earlier, you you were telling your background, how you got into fashion. Your brother kind of introduced you into the history of menswear and everything like that. You fell in love with it. And then just now, you said that Erie, Pennsylvania is more of a blue-collar town. So I understand why you got into the fashion and why you enjoy doing it. What made you realize there was an opportunity to build a shop and build a business like yours in that type of town? What made you realize that that opportunity was there?
0: Well, I think part of it comes from the fact that I do have a blue-collar background. And if somebody like me who's building houses, running plumbing, can get this interested in fashion. Other blue collar people can too. Um, But also we saw a very specific need in Erie, Pennsylvania, because it is a blue collar town. The higher income earners who do enjoy the nicer things, who do enjoy fashion, just had no service whatsoever in this town. Everybody I know, most of my customers had to leave or shop online to get their products. So for, for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. It was like, as lo- soon as you open a store, these people are at least going to be interested in you, and then it's your job just to deliver on the promise that you're making to them, um, which, again, amazingly, we have done so far. So all of these high-end, affluent people were like, this is what we've been looking for. Nobody's been, um, I guess, uh, brave enough, maybe even a little bit naive enough to start this. Um, so we're going to come in and we're going to support. So... That is that that's that's what I would have to say about coming from a blue collar background to a blue collar town to try and start a luxury menswear store.
2: So you kind of mentioned that there was a little bit of pushback of some people that held the opposite view from you of like, there's no opportunity here. How are you ever going to make this? And actually being from Erie, I kind of I actually heard that like on the streets, people saying, oh, there's, you know, some tailor trying to do something and just very negative um, mindset surrounding a new opportunity. How did you overcome some of those obstacles, whether it was directly at you or just sort of the cognitive, you know, negativity of the town? How did you overcome those challenges?
0: I think for me, it was just like a stubbornness to want to try it anyways. Um <laughs> I guess I approached it like, yeah, you could be right. Like, there could be nobody in this town that buys from me, but I'd rather at least try it and figure that out than just believe you. And you also have to figure out where this is coming from. Like, is this coming from a seasoned data analyst of the community of Erie telling you this, or is this some <laughs> guy that is upset that he never followed his dream, telling you you can't mm. follow yours? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had a very like singular, narrow focus. I was like, I'm going to try this, no matter what it takes. I'm going to just. Give it a shot. What's the worst that's going to happen? Um, again, kind of talking about the the infinite game as um, one of the guys I listen to, Simon Sinek, talks about all the time. I was like, I've got plenty of time. I might as well give it a shot. If it works, great. If not, I've got 100 ideas running through my heads that I could do tomorrow. Um, so to me, yeah, it was just be very singular about your mission. And if you believe in it, do it. If somebody's going to be able to just put a passing comment, throw you off of what you wanted to start, then maybe you didn't believe in it enough yourself to begin with, um, which kind of makes you maybe step back and think, should I be doing this? Do I care enough about this? Um, But yeah.
2: That literally just gave me chills um, because I think that a lot of people that are looking to start their own venture, there's like kind of two camps. There's one camp that says, do your market research, find the most viable opportunity and just go with that. And then there's the other camp that's, Like, no, do what you're passionate about. Um, Would you say that your faith kind of played into that confidence? Or is there some other just inherent, you know, characteristic about your personality that you're like, no, I'm confident in what I'm doing. And I believe in myself to be able to make this happen.
0: Yeah, I would say a little bit of both. I think the faith plays a huge role in it. Um, To me, just with what I believe, I have a confidence that even if everything does go well, I still got what I need. I have my eternal salvation for me. So it's like, no matter what happens on this earth, I'm okay from a spiritual point of view. So it's like, you might as well try what you can till you die because when we're dead, we're dead. Um, But then the other side of it is kind of uh, being in the industry for so long, I I felt confident enough in myself that I could make this work. Um, Worst case, I could make it work enough until I had to transplant it to another spot. Um, So I think, kind of designed into me from when I was young I was just very self-confident in what I could do Um, so that did help but yeah the faith does play a big role because once you have that stress off your life of like okay like I already feel like I'm invincible I know what I'm what's going to happen to me when I die so what's the matter of what happens to me while I'm alive Um, but maybe that's just a weird way of looking at
2: it no I think that's great Um, I think that you know just generally, people can kind of struggle with that level of confidence, and so having almost like a bigger you know something somebody looking out for you on a bigger scale of things maybe frees people up like you're saying to kind of okay, the pressure's off at least on one aspect so that you can really focus on what you're trying to do and knowing that there's not necessarily a safety net, but everything underlying will be okay so. I think, yeah, there's, there's a
0: level of having your priorities in line. Like I have my, my relationships, my, uh, I was married at, when was I married? Yeah. I think I was just getting married when it got started. So I was like married. I was, I love my wife's. I knew she was supporting me. So that was covered. Yeah. The faith that, that larger safety net of like, okay, this isn't even that important in the grand scheme of life and death and what what comes after, um, so that did play a good part. But yeah, having your priorities in line and just be like, it's not that real. It's not that serious. Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, and what are you gonna regret at the end of it? Like, are you gonna be are you gonna regret more a venture failing and you not getting exactly what you wanted? Or are you going to regret more not even trying to do it? Um, and to me, that's that's, again, another way that I live my life is the only failure that I see as a failure is the failure of not trying something. So absolutely, by at least trying it, I'm doing something and I'm learning something. So I'm going to gain positively at the end, whether it drains my whole savings, and I got to start from scratch or it turns into a multi-billion dollar company. I've learned something. So therefore I haven't failed.
1: Lewis, that, that is seriously, that is some great stuff. Um, I always try to like, Pretend my ninety-year-old self is like talking to me. It's like, you know, be at least at least you tried, right? Um, I feel like we could talk about that aspect of the business forever. One thing I want to ask you because your business is quite different than a lot of the other businesses that we've had on step into success. Your business relies very heavily on customization and individual, like obviously tailoring. You're a tailor, right? So it, it relies a lot on customization and and personal touch. What are some challenges for that type of business model?
0: Um, The biggest one is just if you have too many options, it can get very um, muddy in terms of customers wanting too many crazy things, um, trying to communicate it, remember it all. There's just a lot to take in. It's sometimes like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, But I think there's more of a benefit than anything, especially now after COVID has changed so much. It really changed the way... Brick and mortar retail was done. Um, People who had massive overhead in terms of inventory were being crushed because they were forced to close. They had no way to recoup their money. Their loans were coming due. Um, Whereas for us, we're able to be very nimble in the fact that we can customize and make you just about anything, but everything that we own to make that happen has already been purchased and paid for. I don't have to keep paying until a customer comes in and tells me what they want. And then I buy the product on at the moment of being paid for the product. So it has helped tremendously with cash flow and how retail has changed after the pandemic. Uh, So it's, yeah, super beneficial. But yeah, being completely custom can also be hard for your brand because if you're trying to send an image, especially with an art space like clothing or photography, you don't want to give people complete free reign because then they start making things that are weird and outside of the scope of what you're trying to put out into the world. So you've got to have a tasteful way of explaining it to them so that they're still adhering to the primo lifestyle and brand, but also being able to get exactly what they want and allow their vision to come to light.
1: Do you find that most of the customers or when they come in, maybe they're not even a customer yet. They're just looking around. Do you find that a lot of them know, or at least have an idea of kind of what they're looking for? Like, Hey, I want something in these particular colors. Or do a lot of them come in there as completely blank slates and you guide them? Hey, this is what's in style right now. Or based on the event you're going to, this is what I suggest. What does that part of your business look like?
0: Absolutely. So I think um, most people come in thinking they have an idea of what they want (laughs) for their clothing. Um, But thankfully, again, because of our trained staff, they're able to actually kind of guide them to what they really want. Some people will come in and... They're like, uh, like in terms of alterations, for example. Like the way we do it is it's per job. Like there could be ten alterations we do to a garment. There might be one alteration that we do to a garment, and the price can vary. And people will just come in and be like, "What does it cost for a tailoring?" And I'm like, "Okay, that doesn't make any sense in this industry." So they think they know what they're asking. They think they know what they want. But again, it's that kind, compassionate coming alongside of being like, "Okay, here's what you said. Here's what I think you mean. Let's try and find what you want." Um, there are some people, for example, that do come in. They know exactly what they want. They've been to, uh, Clothier outside of Erie before. Like I said, they've been going to a guy in Cleveland, Pittsburgh or Buffalo. So they know what they want and they come in, they tell us and we make it. Um, and then other people, they walk in, they didn't even know what a tailor was until they walked in and then we walk them through the whole process. They fall in love with it. And then we're able to kind of guide them into making those choices.
2: That's really interesting. And the fact that you are customizing the garments Does that help you to also keep people in fashion? Because I know fashion trends can change. So how do you stay on top of fashion trends and then also help your customers be fashionable in the current era with their body shape and their own personal style?
0: So the first way of going about it is um, establishing yourself as the authority on the topic. Um, So the way that Primo goes about it is we have a very... I call it like middle fashion about the way we do things. It's not too trendy, but it's not too boring. So it's like right in the middle so that something that you bought in Primo 2021 is going to be fashionable in Primo 2042 because we don't go too crazy. Um, So establishing yourself as the authority gives people the trust to say, okay, I'm giving my image and my personal appearance to you. Take care of it and make me look good. And then from there, we're able to kind of guide them and say, hey- I know you like this, but it might not look good in five years. Um, now, ultimately, at the shop, we are, again, customer first. So if somebody's like, I don't care if it's not going to be cool in two years, I want this. Fine. We want to make you happy. We're going to make you happy. We tried explaining it to you, but now you're on your own. Um, but establishing yourself as an authority, and we were successfully able to do that through networking and our social media, it allows people to trust you deeply. Um, with these decisions they're making
1: this might be too broad of a question really i'm just i'm just thinking here what is your opinion on the state of fashion but maybe men's fashion more specifically in 2024 when i'm walking around i see people that are dressed amazing and i see people that are dressed and stuff that i'm like yo i would not wear that for a halloween costume (laughs) like what's I mean, everything's in style right now in 2024, right? Like, what what's your take on just the the fashion industry and style in general?
0: Yeah, the fashion industry has been taking a pretty big hit um, because of just mostly how casual everybody's gotten. You can wear the same outfit you wear to the gym, that you wear to work, that you wear on the golf course, that you wear um, out to dinner or meeting new people. So, like, people really don't have a care about what they're wearing, which has help, has hurt a lot of people. Um, I see it as a positive move because I believe in the self, subconscious effect that clothing has on people and your life. So if wearing a suit to an interview or a meeting is going to help people respect you, pay attention to you and give a good message, I would rather be educating my customer to be the guy wearing the suit in those environments when everybody else is refusing to because they don't have to anymore. So my customer and the people who subscribe to the style that I promote from other stores are really reaping massive benefits because the subconscious effect of fashion hasn't gone away. The science behind why we wear what we wear hasn't gone away. We still feel these things but very few people are actually taking advantage of it now. So I see it as a massive opportunity in terms of education of like, hey, you might be in a very competitive industry, but if you're the only guy showing up with a well-tied tie and a suit, you are automatically going to be a little bit further ahead from all the competitions just for that. And you're not in a sea of guys with suits anymore. You're standing alone. Um, so that part of the fashion industry, I actually see as an encouraging part of it. Um but yeah, going into 2024, I feel like, yeah, there's there's no rules anymore, which is helpful for people to experiment and try new things and find a passion for it. Uh, but again, we are we are very uh, very big proponents on following the rules of menswear and being tasteful with what you wear. So as long as you do that, you should be pretty good in 2024.
1: So if you're speaking to the young professionals out there, you would advise that it's always better to be overdressed than underdressed. Am I right about that?
0: Absolutely. I mean, even if it's just caring about how you're dressed, some people don't need to be overdressed. But as long as you're putting thought into it before you throw the clothing on, you're already going to be miles ahead of the guy next to you. Um, But yeah, general rule of thumb is always be overdressed. Look like you're going somewhere better after is the way I talk to people. Oh. is like, okay, oh, okay, you're going to a oh. wedding, dress like you've got a better event after this. You're going to a business meeting, act like you're going somewhere better after wear. Not, well, I shouldn't say act because you don't want to be pretentious, but dress in a way of like, hey, I've got another thing I'm going to and I'm preparing for that.
1: Wow.
2: That's really interesting.
1: That That is. Hey, what, one other thing I just want to, again, this may be a very broad question, right? But I'm just, I'm just curious. You, you mentioned a couple of times now throughout this uh, conversation, the psychology of dressing nice can you can you talk about that a little more what what is you know like in the science you said the science behind keeping a good appearance can you talk a little bit to us into the audience about what the importance of dressing up like what psychological effects that has on maybe the people viewing you or even on your own self by by dressing nice i know when i dress up i feel better about myself right is that kind of what you're talking about or is there even more to it than that
0: there are so many different ways you can go with it there's um The history of color theory. Certain colors elicit a reaction out of us. And a lot of marketers and graphic designers know this. Um, That's why McDonald's has red and gold in their logos. Those colors actually give people the thought that they're hungry. And it's very steeped in a lot of science of color theory. So there's that that plays effect into your clothing. Um, and then like you were saying, the the level of self-confidence it gives an individual. Um, clothing has the ability to drastically change the way you view yourself and your emotions on the day. Like when people choose studies have been done where people choose to wear brighter colors, they have a more positive happy day. When people choose to wear dark moody colors, they tend to embody that mood. Um, one of the most uh, notable studies that people talk about in this industry is there was a group of students who, were told to wear painter smocks and take a test and then a group of students who were told to wear lab coats and take a test and they were told these are painter smocks, these are lab tests and based off of the test results the people in the um, painter schmocks were actually more creative in their answers where the people in the lab coats were more matter-of-fact analytical in their answers oh, wow. and it was simply just the switching of telling somebody you're wearing something that a creative person would wear versus you're wearing something that a very data-driven person would wear um, so small things like that, we know to be true with our clothing that if you're able to sit down and just think, okay, where do I want to go? What do I want people to think about me? Um, what, do, yeah, what do I want people to think about me? You can make massive impacts subconsciously. Uh, I forget what the exact, set, exact um, time frame is, but I think you have like three seconds to make a first impression. And usually in those first three seconds, you don't even get to speak to the person. So, what are they looking at? Body language. They're looking at the way you're holding yourself, the way you're walking, the way you reach your hand out to shake their hand, or if you even reach out to shake their hand. And then they're looking at how you're dressed. Are you sloppy? Is it stained? Do you smell bad? They're going through all the uh, subconscious uh, checklists in their mind before they form an opinion. And clothing is one of the one of the biggest factors in that.
1: That is. That is really uh, enlightening and informative right there. So one, one more question kind of on this path that we're on, just, just for fun, I do not mean to exclude any of the female audience out there, but I know that with you uh, you know, making men's tailored suits, just speaking to the men kind of, if I'm a young professional and I don't have, let's say, a nice new suit, if I'm going to go out there and get one suit, either black, tan, navy, gray, whatever. What should I get? What color would you recommend and why? If you could only get one suit to go through the whole year with?
0: One suit, it's usually gonna be a blue. Navy blue or like a darker medium blue. Uh some people say gray. I think blue is a little bit more versatile. It looks good on just about everybody. Um again depending on who you talk to in the industry this can be a bit of a hot button issue. But for me, if you buy a blue suit and you only have one, you can break it up. You can wear a blue pair of pants with just about everything. You can wear a blue sport coat with just about everything. Um, So if it were me, blue, gray, brown, black is like the last suit you should ever get. Um, But blue is the first one. Thanks.
2: (laughs) So you had kind of mentioned um, a little, well, actually throughout the whole interview about like how your social media kind of educates people around fashion I noticed a few posts that mentioned fast fashion and can you tell us a little bit more (laughs) what is fast fashion? How is it different from what you're doing Um, and why should people care?
0: Yes. So fast fashion, kind of as the name uh, describes, it is fashion that is happening at a super fast, rapid rate. Um, A lot of clothing stores like H&M, Zara, they're putting out new collections like every couple of weeks instead of the traditional calendar year, spring, summer, fall, winter. Uh, So what's happening is they're just making clothing at a very rapid rate because the consumer model has changed to where people want something new immediately. Instant gratification. They're Again, they're not really even thinking through it. They're moved by emotion and gut feeling when they see something in the store and they buy it. And it's been growing like, a wildfire for the most part. But the problem is, is when you have something that is produced so quickly, you need to one, cut corners, do things unethically for number two. um, And number three, these companies are trying to maximize profit. If you're going to be making 50 shirts a year, you need those shirts to cost you 10 cents instead of $10 because you're trying to sell a larger volume of pieces. And when you have those three factors bound together, It drives you to look for the most unethical, cheapest source of production, which takes people to underprivileged areas of the world um, and they really exploit them for their work, making very dangerous work environments, again, unethical work environments, uh, just just to feed the consumerism that is mostly found in America but is spreading around the world. What we do to try and combat that is one, through tailoring. Find things that are old, that you love, that maybe just need some fixing up, fitting issues. Bring them into us. Let us bring some new life into it. Uh, The second way we're doing that is by making things of higher quality. Fast fashion items don't last very long. You wear them for a season and then they're meant to be thrown away. We're buying investment pieces. So you buy our blue suit as your first suit and you wear it for like 10 years. So you're not adding to waste. Um, And then the third way we do it is by looking for more sustainable resources, renewable resources whenever we can.
2: It's very interesting. I feel like most people are not aware about that.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. No, that's that's a great point. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah, very educational again.
2: So um, we are running a little bit short on time, but before we kind of end this conversation, what's some advice that you could give to people that are looking to go out on their own, start their own venture, even get into something that maybe is less popular as far as like industry goes? Do you have any like quick golden nuggets of advice for people?
0: Yeah, I would say the biggest thing that was um, helpful for me is to just execute what you want to do, even if it's in a small way. So many people have ideas, but ideas are worth a dime of a dozen. It's all about how well you can execute those ideas. So don't hesitate in trying something and getting your thing off the ground. Um, You won't regret it later. Uh, And then also just figure out if you even want to run a business. Running a business is something that has just been an automatic thing for people to do nowadays, but it is its own skill in itself. You're not just opening a business because you're passionate about knitting. So let's start a knitting business. You start a business because you enjoy the game of business. And if that's not you, that's not a mark against you. That's not a bad thing. Maybe you're just made to do the craft and skill you're good at and just apply it to somebody who is good at running a business and make your money that way. It's not an automatic thing that you have to do to try and make better for yourself. There's a lot of different ways to do it. So make sure that you want to run a business. It's a very long and lonely road to do such. Uh, And then two, if you do think that you are that person, just execute on as many ideas as you have and wait till one of them sticks.
2: I love that. That that That's great advice. Um, Lewis, where can people find your work, your website, socials—anything you want to plug here? How can people find out more about you?
0: Absolutely. So, on pretty much all social media, my account is Aspiring Gent. Uh, you can find me there, and the, which pretty much links to about everything. The store PrimoTailoring.com is where you can find more about how to get contact us with that. But yeah, the social media's Primo Tailoring. Aspiring Gent is going to get you just about everywhere you need to be.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like there's just a it. wealth of knowledge in this Loved conversation. Um, and I think our audience is going to learn a lot more about how they can, you know, be more fashionable and conscious about what they're wearing. So thank you. Well,
0: thank you guys for having me. I mean, this was awesome. You guys have a really sick setup. I'm excited to see <laughs> how this all gets edited and chopped up and posted. So thank you for yeah. having me. You guys did a killer job. Awesome. Thanks thank so much, you.
1: Lewis. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, be bad.